and fascinating, right? Because it means that uh, humans, you know, like by moving crops, are kind of like letting, you know, like these bees naturally uh, expand their range. You are listening to Hey podcast listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. This is one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown. You might recall that last year we had a couple episodes featuring a local bee researcher, Doug Sponsler, who uh, has been working out of Penn State University, but has recently moved back to the Philadelphia area and is researching the ecology of urban bees, basically. And we had him in for a couple episodes, including one episode where we went to uh, basically my garden and hung out next to a couple of squash plants very early in the morning uh, to catch sight of some squash bees, which are specialized solitary bees uh, that, as the name implies, specialize in squash plants. And we talked about them. As you might also know, I also write articles for Grid Magazine, a local environmental publication here in Philadelphia. And so I had pitched to my editors an article about these squash bees. I love squash. I love squash bees. Um, this will come out clearly in the in the rest of the podcast episode today. But I got them to agree to writing an article about squash bees. Look for it in the edition that should be coming out in early August of 2019. And so for this article, I wanted to interview one of, I guess, one of the world experts in squash bees, uh, a professor at Penn State University. Doug was a, a critical part in connecting us to, to, to do this interview. Her name is Margarita Lopez Uribe. Uh, and so she researches, she has been researching squash bees, uh, various aspects of them, including their, I guess these are my words, I guess their biogeographical history. Uh, and she had a publication, uh, an article called Crop Domestication Facilitated Rapid Geographic Expansion of a Specialized Pollinator, the Squash Bee, Peponapis pruinosa, from the Proceedings of the Royal Society of London Bee. As you can tell, I, I do like to geek out on squash bees. But when this article came out, um, it was one of those times where you sort of wonder something on your own and then real experts like write an article investigating and describing their much more sophisticated research into the inkling that you had. And so you just like, it's the most amazing thing in the world. Um, so when I realized that like Doug sponsor actually knew her um, and could put us in touch, I got really excited. So I'll say the sound quality isn't fabulous. So if this is one of those times where you have the choice to listen to this while you're driving on the highway with a lot of background noise or wait till later, um, listen to it in a more quiet setting, maybe listen to it in a little more quiet setting. Um, and we'll do, we'll work harder on how we record phone calls with better audio quality in the future. So sorry for that. If you do like this podcast and you're listening to this, so we hope so, please rate us highly on your podcast listening app of choice. Please tell your friends about it by whatever means you tell your friends about stuff in general. Uh, you can reach us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at urbanwildlifecast. You can find us on Facebook. All these are great ways to give us feedback and to let us know what you think of the podcast and to suggest ideas. And just a little point of geographic clarification for those of you who aren't from the Philadelphia area. Uh, we talk a little bit about the geography of Pennsylvania here. In particular, um, Penn State University is located in a small city called State College, which is in Center County, which... You know, both of these are very literally named places, State College, because hey, that's where Penn State is, um, and Center County, because it is really smack in the middle of Pennsylvania. Um, and so when we're talking a little bit about 
uh, where we are respectively, that's where we are. So if you can look on the map, just point your finger right in the middle of Pennsylvania. That's roughly where um, Margarita Lopez Uribe was when she was talking to me, and I'm here in Philadelphia. One more thing. Um, I want to also make really clear, which we didn't talk about so much in the episode, but that these are easily observable bees, um, particularly if you live in North America. So if you are someone who grows squash like zucchini or um, even like winter squash like pumpkins or butternut squashes or acorn squashes, you name it, uh, go out to your garden or find a friend who has a garden. Go out really early in the morning because these guys start flying basically right about dawn uh, and they'll be out for a few more hours after that. Uh, and take a look at who's in those flowers. Um, and so what you're looking for is, uh, as we talk a little bit about what they look like, um, something that's about honeybee size. The bands are narrower than honeybees. Um, and they are particularly shaggy little bees, um, which you'll notice if you get a view of their whole bodies. I'll point out that like most of the time I'm looking at the abdomen sticking up out of the flower um, because they're face down in squash blossoms drinking up the nectar. And for those who haven't actually seen the squash blossom, you know, look it up. But squash flowers are, are big yellow kind of trumpet shape or bell-shaped flowers. So with that, we hope you enjoy the discussion about squash bees. So my name is Margarita Lopez Uribe. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Entomology at the Pennsylvania State, State University. And um, I'm an evolutionary ecologist, and I'm broadly interested in understanding how different bee species respond to changes in the environment. When you say the word bee to people, they have one, maybe two kinds of bees in mind, you know, honeybees <laughs> and, and bumblebees maybe. So for people who have, you know, who just haven't discovered the wonderful diversity of bees yet, describe what is a squash bee? Yeah, so I guess I should kind of like start by by saying that um, bees is a group of insects that uh, comprises over 20,000 species worldwide. And um, in Pennsylvania currently, we're actually uh, working on a checklist of all the bees that have ever been recorded in the state. And we have approximately 450 species in Pennsylvania. So, um, so yeah, there are, as you say, you know, there is a great diversity of bees. Um, one of these bees is the squash bee. It's a, it's a very unique um, species for multiple reasons. So uh, one of the things that makes squash bees really interesting is that unlike honeybees and bumblebees, which uh, we often see visiting, you know, like different flowers, visiting, you know, like uh, plants in our garden, in agricultural areas, um, the squash bees only visit uh, flowers of one plant genus, which is, you know, like the plant genus of uh, pumpkins and squashes and zucchini and, and yeah, that type of plants. Um, so, yeah, so these bees these specialize in pollen collection of these uh, plant genus, and they are very specialized pollinators of these plants. They look like, I mean, they are about um, honeybee size, okay, but they are a lot hairier. Um, we don't know exactly, you know, like, um, we don't know a lot about their physiology, but we think, and this is something that we're starting to look at in the lab, we think that they actually may do something similar um, uh, as bumblebees do, right? Like bumblebees, for example, they are capable of heating up their bodies when, you know, it's really cold. Uh, and this is why they can fly when, you know, like when um, temperatures are low outside, right? And so this is, you know, part of all the hair that bumblebee, bumblebees have is for uh, thermoregulation purposes. So, you know, like squash bees are also covered with a lot of hair. 
what else? I don't know. You know, like I feel like for 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 me, it's easy to you know like identify as classy. Um, but there are a well, lot of my impression like when I've seen them is that they're kind of flat looking. Like if I'm and mm. if I'm used to because when I see them, I'm usually seeing the the looking at them from the back because they're face down in a squash blossom, and I'm looking at like their abdomens. And my impression has always been that they look a little bit flatter than my usual thought of like my 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 my, my sort of default honeybee shape. But that just mm. might be my impression. I don't know. <laughs> You're not talking yeah, about I don't know. <laughs> I know, but definitely, right. you know, like honeybees don't have a lot of hair, right? Like so, the bands that we see. So, you know, like when we when we color Yeah, and so their bands have, have like little fringes, it looks like. Yeah. It's, but those are hairs, unlike yeah. um, honeybees that, you know, like you talk actually the integument, which is, you know, like dark or, you know, orange or... Um, so, yeah, so these bees are a lot hairier. The males have really long antennas. They have a yellow patch on the clipias. Um, so, you know, it's easy to differentiate them. Talk a little bit about their about their ecology. So, like, I mean, I think we have, again, as our default idea of a bee, you know, we have honeybees that live in these big colonies, and they go to all different kinds of flowers and bring it back, and, you know, they have these different classes of, of, of bees within the, the colony. So, like, what is a – so if people have that starting point, like, what is a, a squash bee like and how it lives? Yeah, so I guess, you know, that's that's actually a very interesting and important question because, if, you know, if we are talking about the biology of bees, actually honeybees are very different from, you know, most bees. The squash bees are actually, you know, like a better – it's a species that better represents biology of, you know, like the majority of bees. So they are solitary, which means that there's only one female per nest. They actually live underground, so, you know, like, instead of, like, nest making a nest in a cavity, you know, in a tree or in a box, um, they actually have to dig, you know, like, um, down the ground. And they make tunnels where, you know, like, they basically, you know, like, collect the pollen and nectar and bring it back into that tunnel. And then after, you know, like, they make um, a provision, you know, kind of a, a mass of pollen and nectar combined, they lay an egg. And they close that, you know, like tunnel. And basically, that mom will never see that baby, right? Like that mom okay. dies that year, and the the egg develops into an adult the following year. That's kind of like the life cycle, which again is more representative of the majority of bees. But uh, squash bees have a very unique and interesting biology, and it's most likely the result of you know like the tight association that they have with their host plants. So they actually forage really early in the morning because squash flowers open only for six hours um, during the day. So it is not um, rare to see squash bees, you know, foraging even before the sun is completely out. And that may be, you know, like also associated for uh, one of the reasons why they have, you know, hairs that may help them uh, thermoregulate better. The plants, even though they are visited for um, nectar by bumblebees and honeybees, the only ones that actually collect the pollen are squash bees. Um, that pollen, we don't know exactly why, but um, it's pollen that most bees don't like. My understanding is that squash pollen, is the grains are particularly large. They Does are large. They are very spiny. Um, so, yeah, so um, we don't know exactly if it is, you know, a mechanical defense, you know, just because of the size and the, you know, like the the shape of the outer part of the pollen grains, or if there is some kind of like chemistry that um, the bees don't like, 
But um, basically, you know, only squash bees collect that pollen actively. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, so it's very interesting because even though, you know, the flowers are huge and they produce tons of nut- nectar and pollen, most bees are not able to actually utilize that uh, huh. resource. Mm-hmm. It's very so, hey, interesting. Um, so you mentioned there's 20,000 odd species of, of bees worldwide, like seven, sorry, 400 or more bee species in Pennsylvania. How common is this kind of host specificity? Like how many other bees are just like one genus or one group of, of plants and one species and that's it? Yeah, it's not very common. Um, so, you know, like, I mean, bees, not all bees are like bumblebees and honeybees that, you know, go to many different hosts. But uh, when we talk about especially bees, oftentimes we're talking about bees that specialize in a plant family, right? So they, they go to many different hosts within a family. Squash are not native to where we're talking. You're in State College. I'm in Philadelphia. So how did squash bees get to, let's say, Philadelphia? Yeah. So it is, of course, you know, something recent. So we think that after domestication of uh, squash and pumpkin plants and widespread cultivation of these domesticated uh, or these crops, then um, that facilitated the movement of the bees. And so we think that the presence of the squash bees in this part of the world could be as recent as, you know, five to, you know, like 2,000 years, more or less. So it's it's relatively um, recent and fascinating, right, because it means that uh, humans, you know, like by moving crops are kind of like letting, you know, like these bees naturally uh, expand their ranges. Given the current distributions and past distributions of the plant and the bee, we kind of assume that the presence of the squash bees, you know, here in the Northeast was something recent. But um, uh, a few years ago, I started looking at the distribution of genetic diversity in um, across, you know, populations of the squash bees throughout North America and Mexico, where the plants and, you know, presumably the bees were from. And what we found is that given, you know, like the genetic information, we actually see a dramatic reduction in the amount of genetic diversity uh, in the populations of the squash bees in the Northeast. That is precisely what one would expect from a demographic expansion, right? So basically there is kind of a foundry effect where uh, a group of, you know, individuals uh, colonizes a new area, and so, you know, like there is a bottleneck from a genetic perspective, and then you have these reduction. And that's exactly what we see here um, in the Northeast and also to the West, right? And so the, the squash bee has not only moved through the Northeast, but also, you know, like it has extended its range in Utah and Idaho. And there, the, you know, like we, we picked up a kind of independent um, genetic bottleneck there as well. Okay. So we think, and this is something that I, I, I would like to, you know, like study in the future, we think that other species of the squash bees may have, you know, like done the same thing. So, for example, there are um, areas of uh, South America and Central America where we know that there are no um, wild cucurbita plants. But okay. we see squash bees in cultivated, you know, like plants as well. So they are different species, but... Um, you know, like it's kind of the same uh, example. Presumably, you know, like the same thing happened. We are yeah. currently investigating the um, 
a single, you know, we're, we're trying to um, determine if actually the specialist herbivore of our squash here in the Northeast actually, you know, like follow a similar pattern. Wait, like the, what do you mean by the herbivore? Uh, the striped cucumber beetle, which, you know, like probably. Oh, uh, I was going <laughs> to ask you about something else. No, because I grow, I grow, I, I squash is one of my winter squashes in particular, like my favorite thing mm-hmm. to grow as a gardener. Um, and I'm going to, I'll avoid going on for like an hour about why they're wonderful. But <laughs> the, but there's a few like relatively squash specific pests. And so yeah. you mentioned the cucumber beetle. I was thinking of the squash vine borer, which is a a, a moth that yeah. um, that is that if you're growing squash is the most like demoralizing pest you can have because it, it's got uh, larvae yeah. you know that develop inside the vines and you don't notice it until the whole plant just yeah. dies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they I, must have done the same thing, right? I don't know um, how specialized that pest. Is right. Okay, but you mentioned uh, the cucumber beetle, so run with that one, yeah. But the, with the cucumber beetle, we know that again, like the squash bee, um, that is a species that complete like the whole uh, life cycle depends on a squash plant. So you know, like the larvae need the roots, and then the adults need the leaves and the flowers. And but they eat other uh, cucurbit, so it isn't just the cucurbit genus, right? Uh, no, so there are, um, there are two groups. Uh, one is a specialist, and that's the striped beetle. There are, um, other species that, that look very similar, but are, are actually a different subfamily. And those uh, are generalists. Those okay. go to corn, those go, yeah, those are, you know, those, those are cutworms, yeah. Um, yep, but, um, the striped beetle, you know, like, is a specialist on, I mean, they, they also attack, uh, cucumbers, which are, you know, closely related. And so my last question is a little bit more philosophical, like, or, or conservationist philosophical. Like, I think, you know, we, we have a lot of discussions about um, what we think of as a native species. Um, <laughs> and so, <laughs> and I, I love this example because I feel like it, it's like, it's, it sort of confounds our definitions. Like, so, so how, I'm sure you guys talk about this over beers in your lap. Like, how do you regard, like, a pre-Columbian, like, Human commensal species is it is that native is it not native like what do you think about it? Well, so that's that's a, a very interesting question and you know like we do talk about uh, that a lot and this is one of the one of the reasons why we moved away from talking about native bees and now we talk about wild bees to kind of like make the differentiation between you know like honeybees which are managed. Um, and, you know, bees that, you know, like may not be completely, you know, like native, uh, but, you know, like they are, they have been naturalized here. This was, this is kind of a, um, a natural invasion, right? Like it was not introduced by, you know, like any specific re- uh, reason, you know, like it just naturally, you know, like happened. And, and I think, you know, like thinking about broader, you were saying about, you know, in the context of conservation, these, um, you know, like new species or introduced species are now, you know, like being naturalized in all ecosystems around the globe and they are creating, you know, new communities. And yeah, I guess, you know, like if we want to be very, um, conservative and, you know, like think about, you know, pristine, um, habitats with, you know, like communities that have, you know, evolved there for their whole history, you know, like we have, Fewer and fewer of those communities 
Um, and this is just, you know, like, this is the reality of the unforeseen, right? Like, this is what we see all over the place. So, um, yeah. <laughs> all right. Fun topic. Thank you. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a tough question. <laughs> oh, it is. No, and it, it's, 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 I don't know. For me, like, it, it, it raises all kinds of interesting questions about, like, how, you could, you could, we could go off of hours, like, about, like, how we define wild versus not wild and, like, how do you, define, yeah. how do you, like, regard the environmental impact of, of Native Americans, you know, like, versus, you know, Western, uh, European America, all that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, for another conversation. Just to, just to add, you know, something else, um, I guess, yeah. you know, unlike, unlike other, uh, so, for example, in Pennsylvania, we have 12, um, Truly, well, you know, like non-native species that have, you know, like been introduced uh, from Europe and Asia, right? Okay. Um, but unlike the squash bee, those bees are probably competing with other bees for floral resources, right? Um, squash bees are only really uh, using um, a resource that we have introduced in our, um, you know, Right. Our habitats here. So, you know, it's kind of a very unique example because, um, yeah, I guess, you know, it could probably compete for like places for nesting with other species, but, uh, you know, like the food is really, you know, like the one thing yeah. that they use, <laughs> you know, like the, they're very specialized in that. We, we have like two, two research programs on squash bees right now. So one, is being led by uh, graduate student Laura Jones, and she is actually looking at disease dynamics in the squash bees and how farms that have a lot of uh, honeybees and bumblebees uh, for, you know, any given reason uh, may be increasing disease pressure in squash bees. Um, uh. Yeah, and she's also looking at how uh, temperature changes in Pennsylvania can actually be um, increasing the negative impact of some of the diseases that we're seeing in squash bees. So that's one project. The other project is being led by uh, Kristen Brochu, and she's a postdoc in the lab. And she's actually growing all of these um, uh, cucurbita species here near State College. And we, we're growing the wild um, host plant ancestor, you know, like the, the plant that we think co-evolved with um, squash bees in Mexico and southeast of the uh, southwest of the U.S. We're what we call a like coyote, what do they call, coyote gourds or something like uh, that? Buffalo. Buffalo, um, buffalo gourd, okay. Yes, yeah. Um, and we are also growing all sorts of like uh, wild and domesticated South American and Central, Central American species to actually see if um, the squash bees that we have here in Pennsylvania have shifted their preferences for different host plants. All right. Well, hey, um, we'll wind up, and I'll just say uh, thank you very much for talking. Uh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to be part of the podcast. Synanthropic organism. Hey, podcast listeners. Uh, we hope you like this interview with Professor Margarita Lopez Uribe. We really appreciate the time she took to talk to us. I'll note that this was also when she was home, like tending to a couple sick kids. So extra thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks again to Doug's sponsor for the connection to make this interview happen. Uh, and thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the podcast, of course, please like us on your podcast listening app of choice. Please recommend us to all of your friends. 
And please don't be a stranger. You can get in touch with us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at urbwildlifecast. You can find us on Facebook. And we hope you listen to the next episode. Thanks.